This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the life has the, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that by grace salvation is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads together and open with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, for the freedom that we have in this nation to do so. For the president that we have, we pray for his safety, we pray for his wisdom, we pray that he would receive the right counsel, the right advice, the right information to make good decisions. Father, we pray for our nation, for its security. We thank you for watching over us. We pray that you would continue to protect us because we know that no matter how great our security forces may be, no matter how adept our intelligence personnel may be, our security is dependent ultimately on only one thing, and that is your protection. Father, we pray for this church, that we might continue to stand steadfast for the truth of your word, that we might not lose sight of the fact that it is the eternal truth of your word that is the basis of our existence and is the purpose of our proclamation, and that we are here for the purpose of growing and advancing to maturity in our spiritual life to glorify you in history. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, to gain a greater appreciation for all that you have provided for us in our so great salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in understanding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? This is a question that our Lord asked on a couple of different occasions during his ministry. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who do men say that I am? He asked Peter, and Peter responded by the fact that you are Christ, the Son of the living God. What are we to say in understanding Christ? There are so many attacks and assaults that are made on the person of Christ that I decided to begin this study with a an extensive look at the Old Testament. Now, we haven't gone through every Messianic prophecy or every Messianic passage, but I'm trying to focus on the main ones to show that in the Old Testament, there is a clear understanding that there is there would be a Messiah who would be both full deity and true humanity united in one person. Now, this is not always precisely clear. We have two basic streams of data that almost merge in the Old Testament. The first stream has to do with his deity, that there would be a Messiah who would be divine. And this is where we focus the beginning of our study, to look at the passages of the Old Testament, the prophecies that focused on his deity. Second, we saw that there is a second stream that indicates that he would be true humanity. 
And I have made the comment that these streams of data do not come together quite uh, as much as they do in the New Testament. They come very close, but they don't come to the same degree of precision and revelation that we have in the New Testament. Now, last time we looked at uh, several passages in the Old Testament that focus on the humanity of Christ. The one passage that is the most clear on both his deity and humanity is Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And to summarize what we taught last time, saw that this would be a sign to the house of David, not just to Ahaz personally. The context was that, that Ahaz was under military threat from an alliance between Assyria and the king of Israel in the north, and that the house of David was under threat, and he was afraid that it would be wiped out. And this was a prophecy that, no, it would not be wiped out. God, indeed, would be true to his promises. So God asked Ahaz if he would... Uh, Ask for a sign, but in his self-righteousness, because remember Ahaz was not, uh, not, not a mature believer by any means, and he was in reversionism. Therefore, uh, he refused to ask for a sign, and Isaiah announced, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And we looked at the debate over the meaning of the word virgin, because there is technically no Hebrew word for virgin. There are three possible word choices, and the choice of Alma here uh, is always used of an unmarried young woman. And the context indicates that this would be a sign. It would be something miraculous. Therefore, even though Alma could technically refer to an unmarried woman who became uh, pregnant who was not a virgin, the fact that it would be miraculous, the, the context of the passage indicates that the word should be and was understood to refer to a virgin in, in this context, that she would be with child and bear a son, and his name would be Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. So the indication is that this son, the in emphasis on son here, that she would give birth to a child, bear a son, indicates his humanity, and the fact that he would be called God with us indicates his his deity. Now, these this brings the two streams together just about as close as they come in the Old Testament. But it doesn't quite touch the precision of such passages in the New Testament as John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, which give us a precise understanding of the mechanics of the incarnation and, and a passage that we will look at in detail in the coming weeks. Now, as I've already said, the emphasis in the last two weeks has been to demonstrate that the Old Testament prophesies that the Messiah would be both fully God and fully man. As we develop that, I emphasize the six sonships of Jesus Christ. Five of those sonships emphasize the humanity of the uh, Messiah. One of them emphasizes the deity of the Messiah. So not only do we have the passages that I 
we looked at last time, but in these titles. First of all, Jesus is called the Son of David in Matthew 1.1. This indicates his humanity because he is a descendant of David. In Matthew 1.1, he is also said to be the son of Abraham, again, emphasizing his humanity, the fact that he would be a descendant of Abraham, he would be a Jew. In Luke 3.38, he is called the son of Adam. This, again, emphasizes his humanity. And then in Daniel 7.13 and Matthew 20.18, just to name one of many, one of many references in the New Testament where we have the title Son of Man. And the title Son of Man indicates his uh, humanity as Son of God emphasizes his deity. Son of Man emphasizes humanity. And then he is called the Son of Mary in Mark 6, verse 3. And then the those are the five that emphasize the humanity of the Messiah. And then the one sonship title that emphasizes his deity is Son of God, and references for that are Psalm 2-7, along with Mark 1-1. Now, in the last last week, we looked at the passages that specifically give information about his, his humanity. We looked at the tiles of sonship just now. And then the third area that we need to understand that pictures his humanity is an area known as typology an area known as typology. So I have three points here of summary of the doctrine of typology. We need to understand what typology is. So let's begin with a definition, definition of typology. And first of all, we have to understand uh, the, the words, the Greek words, on which this word typology is, is, uh, is based. The Greek word is tupos. T transliterated, that would be T-Y-P-O-S, the upsilon in the Greek, when it is in conjunction with another vowel is usually transliterated with a U, but when the upsilon stands alone, it is transliterated with a Y. So that comes across in English as T-Y-P-O-S and is the etymological root of our word type. And a type or a tupas is an imprint that can serve as a mold or a pattern. It's an imprint that can serve as a mold or a pattern for something. A type in the Old Testament is something that is a mold or a pattern of what is then antitypical in the New Testament. Now, these are two new vocabulary words for some of you, type and antitype. A type is that which is... Uh, in the Old Testament, a type is the model, it's the pattern, it's the example. What the type stands for is called the antitype. What the type stands for is called the antitype. So, a type is something that foreshadows a future, uh, a future event. It foreshadows a future event, a person, or a spiritual reality. Now, let's look at some scriptures where this word is used. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, which relates to the events of the Exodus in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul writes, Now these things happened to them, that is, the Jews in the Old Testament, as an example, and that's the Greek word tupas, as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Hebrews chapter 8, 
verse 5 gives us a uh, slightly different use of the word tupas and more in the sense in which we're using it in typology. talks about the articles of furniture in the Old Testament tabernacle and states who serve that these things serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern. That's that word tupas according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And then a third key verse on typology and the use of that word tupas is in Romans 5.14 where we read, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type, that is an example, a uh, foreshadowing of him who was to come. So there's a specific statement there that Adam is a type or an example, a a model or pattern of Jesus Christ. The second word that is used, that is translated in the same way in the English as a model, a pattern, or an example, is the Greek word hupodegma, hupodegma, H-U-P-O-D-E-I-G-M-A. And this word, too, has the meaning of a model, a pattern, or example. In fact, it's used in a synonymous way with tupas in Hebrews 8, Five, that first word copy, who serve a copy, that's the word hupadegma, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Then in Hebrews 9.23, therefore it was necessary for the copies, that is the hupadegma, the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves uh, with better sacrifices than these. So hupadegma and tupas are the two key words to understanding typology. So let's give it, get a definition. Typology is the application of an historical fact, a person, a thing, or an event, as an illustration of a spiritual truth, reality, or a doctrine. A typology is the application of, a his, of an historical fact, could be a person, a thing, or an event, as an illustration of a spiritual truth, reality, or doctrine. A type foreshadows a future event, person, or spiritual reality. Now, there's a couple of dangers that we have to watch out for in typology. Some people are so restrictive in their use of typology. Remember, typology is a form of biblical interpretation. Some people are so restrictive in typology that they limit it to only those things that the Bible says is a specific type. That would really limit your categories. On the other hand, there are those who go overboard and find that every little thing in the Old Testament represents something about Christ. That's a, an overextension of typology. Not everything is a representation of Christ, but more is than is actually used or mentioned in the New Testament. So there has to be a balance, and that comes through a basic study of Scripture. Now, now there are Third point, there are various classifications of types. So the first point had to do with definition. Two words, tupas and hupadegma, giving the definition that the ap- that typology is the application of an historical fact, which could be a person, a thing, or an event, as an illustration of a spiritual truth, a reality, or a doctrine. 
Second point, emphasize the dangers. And the third point, there are the types, the classification of types. There are five. There are persons who are types. There are events that are types. A One person that we've seen already is Adam. Adam is a type of Christ. An event such as the Exodus event is a type of salvation. There are things that are types, such as the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. There are institutions that are types, such as the institution of the priesthood, for example, the Melchizedekian priesthood. And there are ceremonies, such as Passover, which are uh, a classification of types. So there are five classifications of types, persons, events, things, institutions, and ceremonies. And what I want to spend our time this morning looking at is these different types that we find in the Old Testament. This is a great thing for those of you who are teaching in prep school to understand and to look at these different types because when you're teaching in Old Testament stories in the, in, to the kids in prep school, you can then take some of these and apply them, show how there is a spiritual truth there in that Old Testament person, event, ritual, whatever, that pictures certain New Testament truths. So first of all, we'll begin with persons who are types. Persons who are types. The first person who is a uh, type of Christ is Adam. And the passage here is Romans 5.14, which we've already mentioned. Nevertheless, death, that is spiritual death, reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is, that is Adam, is a type or an example of him who was to come. So in what way is Adam a type of Christ? See, what we're looking at here is that in these people, there are certain elements in their life that are utilized in Scripture to portray certain things about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at Adam, we see, first of all, that Adam, as he's utilized in the Old and in the Scriptures, is that Adam is the head of the old creation, but Christ is the head of the new creation. So they each headed up a creation. Adam headed, heads up the old creation. Christ is the head of the new creation. The second thing we see is that both entered life, entered into human history through a special act of God. Adam was specially created, and the Lord Jesus Christ came through the virgin conception and birth. Third, we see that both represent a constituency. Adam represented all of mankind. He was our federal head. He is our was our federal representative. And it is Jesus Christ who stands at the head of the constituency of all those who are believers. And the termino- fourth point, the terminology that's used in the Scripture is the first Adam, referring to Adam, and Christ is referred to as the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 47. So Adam is the first person who is uh, considered a type of Christ. Then as we go through the Scriptures, the second person that comes along who is a type of Christ, who pictures something about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, is Abel. 
We just recently studied Genesis 4 on Wednesday night and the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. So that should be fresh on the minds of some of you. Uh, these were the first two sons, at least as far as we know, in, in, uh, described in Scripture in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, Cain worked with the livestock. Abel, I mean, Cain worked in the fields. Uh, Abel worked with the livestock. He was a shepherd. So Abel is pictured in the Scripture as a shepherd who makes an acceptable sacrifice to God. His sacrifice was accepted by God, which made Cain jealous and angry and caused, uh, as Cain succumbed to that temptation, those mental attitude sins, he murdered his brother. So Abel is pictured as a shepherd who makes an acceptable sacrifice to God, and Jesus Christ is the true shepherd who made an acceptable sacrifice to God. Also, Abel was slain. He was murdered by his brother Cain, and Cain is a type of the world system. Cain represents the world. So Abel, who is called righteous Abel in the New Testament, was slain by Cain, who represents the world. So Jesus Christ was slain by the world. And then third, as Abel's offering was accepted by God, so Christ's offering was accepted by God. And the scripture for that is Hebrews 11.4. So what we see in conclusion is that Abel is a type of Christ, a shepherd. Uh, in his, He's also a type of Christ in his offering, and he is a type of Christ in his death. The third person, as we come through the New Testament, the third person who is a type of Christ is Melchizedek. And the passage there is Genesis 14, 17 through 20. So you might want to open your Bibles briefly to Genesis 14. We'll just, we'll hit some of these passages because they're a bit longer than others. We'll not put them up on the overhead. Genesis 14, 17 to 20. Then, or 18 to 20 actually, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, that is, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham, Avram, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him, that is, he being Abraham, Avram here, he gave him a tithe of all. Now, the historical con- context here is that the uh, kings of the east... Uh, mentioned in the beginning of chapter 14, Amraphel, Arioch, Keterleomer, and Tidal have made war with the kings of the valley. And as they have invaded, they took various captives back with them along with uh, Avram's nephew Lot. And so Avram puts together an army of all of his servants, 318 trained men, and they go out in pursuit of these invaders, and they defeat them. And then on their return, they come back to the city of Salem, which is the early name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, And Salem means peace. It is the same root from which uh, we get the word shalom in Hebrew. And Melchizedek is viewed as the king of Salem or the king of peace. His name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Mel, if we, let me put this up on the, 
on the screen. Melchizedek is a compound word actually in the Hebrew. Uh, Melek is king. And Zedek is righteousness. So his name means the king of righteousness. And he is the ruler in Salem, which means peace. And on his return from his victory, Avram stops in Salem, and he is going to present an offering to God through Melchizedek, who is a priest-king in Salem. Now, in Psalm 110.4, we are told that the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is not a Jew. He is a Gentile. So this represents a priesthood that is distinct from the priesthood of the Levitical law. The Levitical priesthood and the, or the Mosaic law, that is the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood. Psalm 110.4, the Messiah would be a priest after the order of, of uh, Melchizedek, and this is picked up and referenced in Hebrews. The name of Melchizedek as the king of righteousness is a type of Christ who is the king of righteousness. That he reigns in Salem, which means peace, is a type of Christ who is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah uh, 9.6. He, therefore, Melchizedek, is a type of Christ in that he foreshadows the Messiah as a priest-king. Now, a priest is one who represents somebody to God. So this indicates that as a priest, he would be true humanity. So we have seen that he is a, that, that Christ is, uh, typified by Adam. So that would indicate his humanity. By Abel as a shepherd, that indicates his humanity. Again, by Melchizedek, that represents that the Messiah would be a human. Now the fourth person to represent Christ, the fourth type, is Isaac. The firstborn of, called the firstborn of Abraham. He is not the firstborn chronologically, but he is in priority because he was the promised son. In Hebrews 11:17, Isaac is called the only begotten of Abraham. So he foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten of God, John 3.16. The term only begotten monogenes emphasizes uniqueness. Isaac was uniquely born because he was born miraculously to his parents when they were well past the years of childbearing. So Isaac is a type of Christ in that he is called the uniquely born one. He is a type of Christ in that both he and the Lord Jesus Christ had a miraculous birth. Uh, he is a type of Christ in that both of them had births that were foretold and promised. Furthermore, that he is not only a type of Christ in being an only begotten in terms of his birth, but he is a type in sacrifice. In Genesis 22, uh, Abraham was told by God to take his son, his only begotten son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him to God. So in Genesis 22, Isaac was to be sacrificed on Moriah by his father. At the last minute, God stayed Abraham's hand and provided a substitute in the ram, which itself is a picture of salvation. Jesus, and 
in uh, parallel to Isaac, is sacrificed on Moriah by his father. So Isaac was to be sacrificed on Moriah by his father, and Jesus is actually sacrificed on Moriah by his father. In Genesis 24, uh, Isaac's father, Abraham, secures for him a bride. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit securing a bride um, for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ in the church age. So that uh, in the New Testament, the church is represented by Isaac, the spiritual children of Abraham, are analogous to Isaac, Galatians 4.28, in contrast to the descendants through Ishmael, who are the children of the slave Hagar, Galatians 4.29. So Isaac is a type of Christ in his birth, in his uh, being the uniquely born one. He is a type of Christ in in the sacrifice by his father on Moriah, He is a type of Christ in terms of securing a bride, and he is a type of Christ in terms of being, I mean, he's a type of the church as they are composed of the, or represent the spiritual children of Abraham. So Isaac represents again the humanity of Christ in his, in his birth, and, uh, that emphasizes the humanity of the Messiah. The fifth type of a person, the fifth person who is a type of Christ in the Old Testament is Benjamin. The fifth is Benjamin, Galatians 35.18. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died. Let me see, here's there. Came about as her soul, this is his mother, uh, Rebecca, came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin, Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni means son of sorrow. And as, excuse me, Rachel was his mother, as Rachel was dying, and she called him the son of sorrow. But Jacob, after she died, referred or called Benjamin, renamed him uh, Benjamin, the son of my right hand. As Benoni, Jesus was the son of sorrow. He is a son of sorrow to his mother, Luke 2.35, because of his destiny to go to the cross and die for our sins. And then he is the man of sorrows who paid the penalty for our sins. But as Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, he is... Uh, now sits at the right hand of God the Father, uh, victorious in his battle, just as the tribe of Benjamin was victorious as a warrior. So these are five persons who are types of Christ in the Old Testament. We will just go through those five and then go to various events, various events that were types of Christ in the Old Testament. The primary event that we would refer to would be the Exodus event, or Passover. Let's begin with Passover. In the Passover, there is a picture of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we have already seen in our study of Passover just a few weeks ago. 
that the Passover focuses on a lamb, a lamb that is without spot or blemish. And that was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who was sinless, the Lord Jesus Christ who was impeccable. This imagery is then picked up in the New Testament by John the Baptist who refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So one example of a type of of an event that is a type of Christ is the Passover, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Passover is also a type of salvation, a picture of salvation, because the blood of that lamb had to be applied to the doorposts, and that foreshadows the application of the blood, which represents the spiritual uh, substitutionary work of Christ on the cross, that the the work of Christ on the cross has to be applied to each individual person. So the Passover event is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Then we have another classification of types in terms of things, things such as the the construction of the ark in the ark or excuse me the construction of the tabernacle in the construction of the tabernacle they were to use acacia wood and then overlay it with gold so that the acacia wood which was temporal which could could be corruptible the acacia wood represents the humanity of the lord jesus christ and the overlay with gold represents the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you had acacia wood overlaid with gold for many different elements of the tabernacle as well as the Ark of the Covenant. So those two elements are brought together to typify the undiminished deity and the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you have institutions. You have the institutions that picture the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two of these institutions would be the Melchizedekian priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. The uh, Melchizedekian priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. Even though Jesus Christ was not of the tribe of Levi or descendant of Aaron, there were certain things that the priests did which represent the uh, high priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ in interceding for the people and making sacrifice for the people and he is portrayed in that. So these institutions, such as the priesthood, represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there were various rituals that took place in the Old Testament that picture the Lord Jesus Christ, such as the ritual we've talked about already, Passover, the ritual of the uh, unleavened bread, and these all represent the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of these events in the Old Testament picture the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at the at the Old Testament, we see that there is no way to escape the fact that the Old Testament portrays the Lord as the or the coming Messiah as both undiminished deity and True humanity united together in one person. This is not some invention of the church age. It's not something the apostles came up with. It's not something that later uh, apostolic fathers or church leaders invented in order to somehow uh, make Jesus a little more special. It was these were 
this was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, next time when we come back, we'll look at the next element as we get into the church age and we begin to focus, I mean, get into the life of Christ as we begin to focus on the incarnation. The incarnation is the crucial and critical element in relationship to the person of Christ. This is why there is so much debate over the virgin conception and virgin birth. If that did not take place, as the Scripture describes, then he is not full deity. And if he is not full deity, then Jesus Christ is nothing more than a mere mortal who could not go to the cross and die for our sins. So next time we will come back and we will begin to look at the incarnation itself. Everything that we've studied so far has focused on the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ uh, before the Christ in eternity, Christ in the Old Testament, and beginning next time, we'll begin our study of the Incarnation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study about our Savior this morning, to gain a greater appreciation of his person, his undiminished deity, and his true humanity, that in his humanity he was able, by being a true, full human being, to go to the cross and die as our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sins. Uh, Perhaps you're here this morning and you're uncertain or unsure about your eternal destiny. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain, to uh, determine that you will spend eternity with our Lord. All you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of Ritual, it's not a matter of moral reformation. It is simply a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. They've been paid in full. There is nothing you can add to that. It is a free gift. That's what grace is. So that all that is necessary is for you to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.